Morning, Saints. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see each one of you here this morning. I'm excited about this morning's message. Uh, Frankly, I'm just excited to be alive. No less than an hour ago, I had a huge black widow climb right across my hand. I shook it off somehow. I don't think it bit me. Um, I guess you do feel them. They're painful bites, not painless. But nevertheless, if I go down, uh, you you know what to tell the emergency room physicians of what might have happened. Um, I want to thank Advent Hope for giving me the opportunity to speak today. I want to also thank my brother Carlos. Uh, he schedules the speakers. Uh, I'd been dodging him for about a whole year to preach this because uh, I've been feeling a little intimidated. But he's a good brother and he's a good friend and he encouraged me just to get up here and do it. Um, one of the reasons why I was so intimidated was because of the message I felt God wanted me to speak on today. So I want to speak on why I believe God exists. Okay, because in the current climate, Science has become so supreme that the idea of belief in a deity is almost laughable. You know, I went to a secular university in Detroit, was a science major, and I ran into many tough things I had to deal with and friends I had to talk to, and I just always wanted to find out, are there good reasons to believe what we believe? Okay, so I'm going to talk about just one, one argument that I found uh, very compelling in my, in my study, and we're going to look at what's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It looks at the beginning of the universe, and it tries to demonstrate that theism is far more plausible than atheism. Okay? So belief in a deity is more plausible than non-belief. Usually these are presented in a cumulative case. We have the argument from the beginning. We also have an argument from the design of the universe, the teleological argument. Arguments from objective morality. Arguments for the Bible, Christ, the resurrection. So usually you present a cumulative case. We don't have that luxury this morning, so I want to look at one argument that I found compelling, and hopefully you do likewise. You know, I'm no philosopher. I'm no um, Christian apologist. I'm just a medical student. I'm going to present this how I understand it and try to demonstrate how I find it to be very compelling. The title is bara, the Hebrew word bara. Does anybody know what that means? That's the Hebrew writing right there. It means to create something out of nothing. To create something out of nothing. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would be with me. Help us to get through this in a timely fashion. I pray that um, you have promised wherever we gather, you would send your spirit. We need your spirit. I need you to remove anything that may separate me from you. Anything I might say that may not glorify your truth, please remove that from my mouth. We love you so much. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So apologetics. What do we mean when we say apologetics? The classic text that people go to is 1 Peter 3.15, if you want to turn there. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as your Lord. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. It says to give a defense or to give an answer. That comes from the Greek word apologia. It just means speaking in defense. We see throughout the New Testament, Paul did this on many occasions. He would always combat the skeptics of the day and have reasons of why he believed what he did. I went to the best source I know, Wikipedia, and I pulled this. Uh, I just noticed it's a bad start. I didn't even like say it was from Wikipedia. Anyway, a field of Christian theology that claims that aims to present a rational basis for the Christian faith, defend the faith against objections, 
and expose the perceived flaws of other worldviews. That's what we mean when we say apologetics. It means to have good reasons why you believe what you believe. My friends in particular, it's hard to talk about Jesus or even the Bible until you get past saying, you know what, God is plausible before you can even get to Jesus. That's what we're going to try to demonstrate this morning. Before we get into the argument, this is what Sister White has to say about the role of evidence. Many, especially those who are young in the Christian life, are at times troubled with the suggestions of skepticism. How can I be freed from all these doubts and perplexities? God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. We're going to get to the rest of this quote. I gave you half the quote now. We're going to get to the, the other half at the end. That way, if this doesn't go as well as I want, nobody's going to sneak out the back because you want, to, you want to hear the rest of this quote. And we're going to see what evidence she believes uh, is very profound, which I agree with her. All right. So the Kalam cosmological argument. What does that? Let's just read it first. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. You might be wondering, Kalam, what does that mean? Kalam is an Islamic word. It just means uh, Islamic practice of seeking theological knowledge through debate. There's lots of ways to formulate this argument. This is from a gentleman, Al-Khazali, in the 12th century because he felt that the Greek philosophy of an eternal universe was kind of corrupting his body of believers, his theistic believers. So he developed this, this argument. Other people like Thomas Aquinas, uh, Spinoza, Anselm, Plato, Aristotle, all these people formulated similar arguments to show that the universe can't be eternal. It had to have a beginning, and they're going to try to demonstrate how that beginning had to have been God. The way that we formulate this is called a syllogism. Okay, it's called a syllogism. What that means is there's a major premise, whatever begins to exist, a minor premise, the universe began to exist, the conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause. This is important because I want you to notice this is logically airtight. That means if the first premise is true and the second premise is true, the conclusion follows logically and inescapably. So what you need to do is be able to give reasons to defend the first premise and the second premise, and if somebody wants to debunk this argument, they have to show that either premise one or two is invalid. Okay? A um, couple other things about this argument. You also notice it says nothing about God. Yeah? It says nothing about Christianity. That's a good observation. First of all, to show that the universe had a beginning and had a cause is a huge step in the right direction for atheism, or for theism, rather. At the end of this argument, we're going to switch to, this is the deductive part of the argument, okay? We're going to switch to inductive reasoning and look at what characteristics this cause must have, okay? And we're going to see those fall right in line with the God of the Bible. Is everybody with me so far? Does that make sense? So we're going to go point by point and talk about each of these premises to see why they're more believable than their negation, okay? So, whatever begins to exist has a cause. To me, this is virtually undeniable. You won't find many people try to object to the first premise. I still gave three reasons to support it. One, something cannot come from nothing. Pretty intuitive. Something cannot come from nothing. To claim that the universe can just appear out of nothing, which we're going to see it did, without a cause is really worse than a magic trick. 
It is. At least with a magician, you have a hat and a, a silly wand, and then the rabbit comes. But with the universe, we're going to find there was no magical hat, no wands, no nothing. Okay? The second reason is if something can come from, if something can come into being uncaused out of nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything and everything does not come into existence uncaused from nothing. Think about it. How can the universe just pop into being without a cause and yet nothing else does? We don't see root beer pop into existence uncaused. Why don't we see veggie burgers pop into existence uncaused? Okay, nobody here is worried during this presentation that a horse is going to pop into existence in your room and eat up your dirty laundry when I'm talking. <laughs> right? Nobody believes that. Things that have beginnings have causes. The last reason is common experience and scientific evidence constantly confirm this. We know that babies have parents. We know that paint, paintings have painters. We know that bad PowerPoints have bad PowerPoint makers. We know that things that have beginnings have causes. Okay. What is, how would people object to this? This is just one objection I want to look at. This gentleman, Daniel Dennett. Now, I'm not choosing just any lightweights. This is a premier, current, atheistic philosopher, professor at Tufts University, writing on this cosmological argument, and this is what he says. This is his uh, rebuttal against it. He says, the cosmological argument, which in its simplest form states that since everything must have a cause, the universe must have a cause. He says, well then, what caused God? Seems like a fair critique, yeah? Does anybody see a problem with this? Let's see how many good students we have. What is the first premise of the argument? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We're not claiming that everything needs a cause, only things that have a beginning. Notice what he's saying, since everything must have a cause. If something is eternal and without a beginning, it doesn't need a cause. God is, this is, people... You might seem like I'm nitpicking here. I'm not. This is how people respond to it. It's really just a misunderstanding of the argument. They present a straw man or a caricature, and then they debunk that as if they debunk the argument. Okay? We're not saying everything has a beginning. Abstract objects, like the number seven, I don't think ever had a beginning. It's, not, it's changeless. It's immaterial. We're not going to find the number seven hiding somewhere and have to return it to the math department. It's beginningless. I think it... <laughs> It's beginningless, it's, it's eternal. God, by definition, did not have a beginning. He's immune to this argument, okay? So we know where we're at. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Looked at some reasons to support it. I think it's pretty intuitive. The second premise, this is where most objections will come. The universe began to exist. This is where people will try to object. All right, so we're going to look at two philosophical arguments which people like Al-Ghazali that formulated this, people like Plato, that's what they had was philosophical arguments to support this. We have some current scientific confirmations that, you know what, the universe had an absolute beginning. So we're going to look at two philosophical, two scientific confirmations of this. Number one, this is the, one of the philosophical arguments to show that the universe had to have a beginning. And what we're going to argue is, if there was no beginning, there was an infinite number of causes before today. And what we're going to try to demonstrate is there is an impossibility of an infinite number of things. Okay? Impossibility of an infinite number of things. That's just a kind of 
Fancy way to, to show it. A beginningless series of events in time entails an actual infinite. So if there was no beginning, there would have been an infinite number of events today, before today, and what people try to demonstrate is that's impossible. How can we do this? First of all, we need to talk about what do I mean when I say infinity? There's two types of infinity. Yeah? There's actual and potential. Two Hebrew letters. The first one, Hebrew letter Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. That's an actual infinity. The second one is, the, oh, that's bad. That's supposed to be a lazy eight. Um, <laughs> a lemniscid, or I think is how you pronounce it. That's a potential infinite. We're not arguing that there's no potential infinites, only actual infinites. We're saying there can't be an actual number of quarters. There can't be an actual number of people, of infinite number of people. There can't be an actual number of infinite events prior to today. How can you get your mind wrapped around this? Say this podium is two feet in length. Okay? Say it's two feet in length. You can potentially divide that in half. One foot. Yeah? You could potentially divide it in half again. Six inches. Again, three inches. You can potentially keep going half and half and half, ad infinim, to infinity. Okay? You just keep going smaller and smaller and smaller. This is not, I didn't think of this last night. This is the way that mathematicians demonstrate it. But within that two feet, we know it has a beginning and has an end. So no matter how small you divide it, there can't be an actual infinite number of points. Okay? We're trying to argue there can't be an actual infinite. We're not arguing against potential infinites. If you remember from your math class, you use them in mathematics all the time. So don't let people trip you up. We're going to have to skip the Hilbert's Hotel. This brilliant German mathematician came up with uh, this uh, imaginary hotel to show how contradictory it is to believe an actual infinite exists. We're going to go to a little bit simpler of an illustration to help get your mind around this. I want you to, this is assuming an actual infinite can exist. We're going to demonstrate it leads to mathematical absurdities and contradictions. Okay? Imagine you have an infinite number of marbles. Okay? Say I give you all the marbles. How many marbles do I have left? I give them all to you, I have none. I have an infinite pile of marbles. I give all of them to you. No more marbles. Okay? Suppose I have that same infinite pile. This time, I give you every even-numbered marble. How many, mar how many even-numbered marbles are there in an infinite set? There's an infinite amount, right? There's no end to the even numbers. How many do I have left? I kept the odds. How many odds are there? There's... There's an infinite amount of odds, yeah? This gets even weirder. Say I give you, say I give you all the number marbles from four and above. Only from four onward, I give them all to you. How many I have left? Well, I gave you number four, so I have three. Yeah? I mean, again, I didn't just think of this. This is how mathematicians demonstrate the impossibility of an actual infinite. Notice, each time we have identical number, infinite, Minus an identical number, we get a non-identical result. It leads to absurdities. It leads to contradictions. So what we're trying to demonstrate, there can't be an actual infinite number of events prior to today. So the universe had to have a beginning. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, objection. How then can God be infinite? Yeah, you can see how someone would raise that objection. Like, haven't you guys always said God is infinite? God is not an infinite, he's not a mathematical concept. Right? He's not an infinite number of moving parts. He's not an infinite number of events. 
See, when we speak of God's infinite, we say he's all-loving, right? He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He, you know, these are qualitative characteristics of God, not quantitative, okay? We're arguing against an actual quantitative infinite, not of a qualitative, okay? So again, don't get tripped up by that. All right, in case you guys didn't understand it, someone a lot smarter than me saying it. The infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. Many people, many brilliant people realize that the infinite is impossible. Another way, we're going to have to skip this one. This is another, remember, we're on the philosophical reasons to show that the universe had to have a beginning. The second one is basically saying, even if an infinite can exist, an infinite number, you can't form it by sequential addition, by one and another and another, which would happen all the events prior to the day. It would have been a sequential addition for infinity prior to the day. A couple things I want to point out is this, this point is distinct and separate from the first. So even if someone can debunk the first one, this one stands alone. This doesn't say an infinite can exist. It just says you can't form it by sequential addition. Okay? Sometimes people refer to this as traversing the infinity. You can't get to today because before today, yesterday, day before that, yesterday, you get pushed back to infinity so you can never arrive at the present. I wish we could illustrate it more, but that's another way to demonstrate it. All right, so this is where it gets really interesting. We looked at a couple philosophical reasons briefly. I talked about those very briefly. Whole books are dedicated to this. I had to cut this down into a manageable portion. Two scientific confirmations that makes it absolute that the universe did have a beginning. Number one is the expansion of the universe. Number two is the thermodynamic properties of the universe. All right, so check this out. So prior to the 1920s, these are relatively recent discoveries. People always thought the universe was infinite. It was changeless. It was eternal. It was stationary. It, you might remember Carl Sagan's TV show. I think it was the universe. The, the universe is all there is or ever was or ever will be. People always thought the universe has just been here. It's eternal. But then this guy, Albert Einstein, came along, 1917. Might have heard of him. He came up with this, something called the general theory of relativity. I'm not going to act like I understand it all. This is, what I, what, this is what I can gather. He found out through these mathematical equations that things are looking a bit fishy. The universe may not have always been here. He had to derive what people say, writing about it, say he had to smudge his equations. Yeah? He had to come up with this new constant that offset the gravitational matter, effective matter, whatever that means, to, to, make his, to make his equations work. They're kind of balanced on a razor's edge. So he was starting to find out, you know what, maybe this universe hasn't always been here. Okay? Then these two guys, this Russian mathematician, Alexander Friedemann, and this Belgian astronomer came along, and they made some predictions, some equations to say, what might we see if the universe did, in fact, have a beginning? And make sure you see the forest through the trees here. If we can demonstrate something had a beginning, we can say it had a beginner. Okay? That's where we're going with this. This is just a quote on the magnitude and how profound this was to actually think that the universe was changing and not eternal. So what put the nail in the coffin, 1929, finally we have an American comes on the scene, right? This American astronomer, Edwin Hubble. You probably heard of the Hubble telescope. Yeah, so what he figured out through countless hours of looking out into distant galaxies 
is the light that was emitted is redder than it should be for the distance. The only way that they could explain that is it's being stretched. As you stretch light, you know, on the light spectrum, it, it emits rays that are more red. And if you, oh, you can't see the blue. The bottom one is if something's moving towards you, it becomes more blue. Again, how did we learn anything before Wikipedia? I pulled this image right off of Wikipedia. Um, so I hope you get the idea. What he found out is the universe is getting bigger. So think about this. Like, that's crazy. How can... So here's the universe, right? The light coming is becoming more red. You know, this is with Einstein's equations, the whole cumulative case. And now we see that the universe is growing. If something has been growing for an infinite amount of time, how can it get bigger? How can there be something outside of it that hasn't been consumed by it yet? Yeah? And people thought, wait a minute. If it's this size today, yesterday, it was this size, right? The day before that, it was this size. So this raised some huge, huge questions. Like, how could this actually be growing? This talks about how great of a prediction this was. I want you to hear what this guy says. If we extrapolate this prediction to its extreme, we reach a point when all distance in the universe has shrunk to zero. An initial cosmological singularity, therefore, forms a past extremity to the universe. We cannot continue physical reasoning or even the concept of space-time through such an extremity. For this reason, most cosmologists think of the initial singularity, we'll get to that, as the beginning of the universe. On this view, the Big Bang represents the creation event, creation of not only all of matter and energy, but of time itself. At this singularity, space and time came into existence. Literally nothing existed before the singularity. So... If the universe originated at such a singularity, we would truly have creation ex nihilo, the Latin for out of nothing. So what are they talking about this singularity? These are kind of a simplification of their models, how they draw them out. So this is the universe growing and expanding. If you extrapolate it back, you get to this point. Because you can't extrapolate things back you know, for an infinite amount of time. So you get to this point called the singularity. And notice what they say. Before the singularity, nothing existed. Speaking of nothing when they mean matter and energy. But we've already demonstrated it couldn't be nothing in a causal sense. Because if something has a beginning, it has a cause. If there was ever a point in causality where nothing existed, nothing would exist now. Things that have beginning have cause. Or things that have a beginning have a cause. This has made a lot of physicists and astronomers very uncomfortable. There's been a whole bunch of different models presented to try to avoid the fact that the universe didn't begin. Because they intuitively know things that have beginnings have beginners. Yeah? So this is the, what's called the Big Bang. The Big Bang was this singularity that blew up. Okay? Stephen Hawking further corroborates this. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And I agree with Sir Arthur Eddington here. He says, the beginning seems to present insuperable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as frankly supernatural. These are relatively recent discoveries. This put the nail in the coffin. This guy said, you know what? If this huge explosion happened, we should see some footprints in the universe. He called it background radiation. There should be some kind of 
these like these, this heat in the universe we would find. Uh, we can't go into all the details, but he found that. He won the Nobel Prize. This is a brilliant man. Listen to what he says. The best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. I was learning these things in undergrad, and I went to, I went to church. I thought, these crazy Christians, they just need some comfort. Why are they doing this? And I began to read this, and all I could think of was, in the beginning, God created. I'm like, you know what? Maybe these guys are onto something. Maybe Christianity isn't as crazy as people make it out to be. All right, this guy, he's no Christian. He's a secular Jew. He's kind of looking at this from the outside. He has no bias either way. Listen to what he says. There is nonetheless a striking point at which Big Bang cosmology and traditional theological claims intersect. The universe has not proceeded from everlasting to everlasting. The cosmological argument, or the cosmological beginning, may be obscure, but the universe is finite in time. This is something that until the 20th century was not known. When it became known, it astonished the community of physicists and everyone else. The hypothesis of God's existence and the facts of contemporary cosmology are consistent. In the beginning, God created I told you I'd give you two scientific reasons. This is the second. I knew it would be hurting on time, so let me briefly tell you what this is. The second law of thermodynamics means unless you're feeding energy into a closed system, it's going to basically run out and die. You're going to come to this steady state uh, where there's really no more um, uh, processes that can go on. There's some ways to illustrate this. Christians have brought this up way long ago because if you apply this to the universe, which is just this huge closed system, right? It's going to eventually run down and quit. It's going to run out of this usable energy. So people, the implications is, how could it have been here forever? It would have ran out and died, right? It was filled up with something. You run out of gas in your car because it was originally filled up. Something that's eternal can't be a ticking tock or a ticking tock, a ticking clock that's running down, okay? There's more we can talk about there, but this really put the nail in the coffin. Two great scientific reasons to believe the universe had a beginning. Listen to this. Let's remember that the Old Testament was written more than 2,500 years ago by people that essentially contended that God told them what he did. Gerald Schroeder notes, these commentaries were not composed in response to cosmological discoveries as an attempt to force an agreement between theology and cosmology. Theology represents a fixed view of the universe. Science, through its progressively improved understanding of the world, has come to agree with theology. My friends, we need not be afraid of science. Science, correctly understood, always comes to agree with theology. Robert Jastrow, I love how he puts it. For the scientist who has lived by faith in his power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. In the beginning, God created. All right. So you're probably thinking, Eric, you can't just help yourself to the remainder here. You can't just say, well, that was the Christian God. We've demonstrated things that have a beginning, have a cause. We've demonstrated the universe had a cause. How can you say that it's the God of the Bible? Okay? Let's think of some characteristics this first cause must have had. Listen to how Dr. Craig puts it. It therefore follows that the universe had an external cause. We'll talk about each of these at the end. Conceptual analysis enables us to recover a number of striking properties 
which must be possessed by such an ultra-mundane being. For as the cause of space and time, this entity must transcend space and time and therefore exist atemporally and non-spatially. This transcendent cause must therefore be changeless and immaterial, since timelessness entails changelessness, and changelessness implies immateriality. Such a cause must be beginningless and uncaused, at least in the sense of lacking any antecedent causal conditions, since there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. This entity must be unimaginably powerful since it created the universe without any material. Let's break this down. He's saying it has to be immaterial because when you look at the, this Big Bang model in the beginning of the universe, all of matter and energy began at the beginning. There was no, there was no matter before that. So whatever created this has to be immaterial. Whatever created this had to be transcendent, had to be outside of the universe because there was a point when the universe was not. It must be changeless. Like, think, of, think of what the Bible has always claimed about God. Um, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is immaterial. I am the Lord your God. I change not. Yeah? This thing must also be unimaginably powerful. No effect that we are aware of supersedes its cause. No effect supersedes its cause. If we were to come in here and this table was moved over towards the door, you say, hey, Eric, who moved that table over there? I was like, you know what? An ant put it on its shoulders and walked it over there. And you're like, come on, man, who are you kidding? The effect must match the cause. The effect cannot supersede the cause. Extrapolate this to the universe. The universe is the greatest thing that we know of. Whatever caused this may just be the greatest thing that we know of. Yeah? This gets even crazier. This cause must be personal. This cause must be personal. Three ways to support this. Number one, scientific versus personal explanations. A couple ways to demonstrate this. Say I walk into the kitchen and my brother Kyle over here is boiling some water. I say, hey Kyle, man, what's up with that water boiling? Kyle's a really smart guy. He might give me really smart answers like, well, Eric, you know, the heat coming up from the fire touches the copper of the pot, it speeds up the molecules in the water until they overcome the liquid and come into the gaseous state, and yada, yada, yada. He waxes eloquently. Gives an awesome scientific explanation of why the water's boiling. Okay? Somebody might ask me. I'm a little different than Kyle. They'll say, hey, Eric, why is the water boiling? I'm like, listen, man, I wanted to make some tea. Right? <laughs> so what, both of those are legitimate explanations. One scientific, the other personal. When you get to the beginning of the universe, we've demonstrated there are no laws of science. There is no material. There is no energy. Scientific explanation out, is out the door. The other one that leaves is maybe a personal explanation. It's implied by its timelessness and immateriality. There are only two things that we know of that can fit the bill of being timeless, changeless, and immaterial. We've already hinted at one, abstract objects. Abstract objects like the number seven are immaterial, we're not going to find the number seven somewhere, they're changeless and they're timeless. The other thing that fits the bill is a consciousness, a disembodied mind, can be eternal, timeless, and changeless. But think about this, the number seven never caused anything, right? Abstract objects don't have causal capabilities. However, a consciousness or a disembodied mind, yeah, does have causal. Think about this. It's implied by the fact that a temporal effect from a timeless cause. Hopefully you guys can get your minds wrapped around this. 
whatever caused the beginning to exist has to be infinite. We didn't have a whole lot of time to demonstrate it, but it's basically because there can't be an infinite regress of causes. The cause is infinite. We know that the universe is not. We have an infinite cause, a temporal effect. Imagine 32 degrees Celsius, the temperature needed for water to freeze. As long as it's 32 degrees Celsius, water's frozen. If it was always 32 degrees Celsius for an infinite amount of time, water would always be frozen, right? As long as the capabilities and the parameters of the cause are there, the effect will be there. But we see that the cause has to be eternal. We know that the effect is not. Many people have wrestled with this idea and the way that they have thought about it and the only explanation they, they've figured out is this cause must have been endowed with freedom of the will. At some point, it must have made a decision to enact the cause. I hope that makes sense. There's more we could talk about of that. So check this out. We've looked at this argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. I think there's pretty fair grounds to believe that at least better than its negation, that things don't have a cause. We showed that the universe began to exist. We showed that the universe needs a cause. We switched to inductive reasoning and saw that this cause must be transcendent, changeless, timeless, immaterial, beginningless, uncaused, exceedingly power, and personal. That sounds a little bit like the God of the Bible. Yeah? We're not looking at the Bible. We're not looking at prophecy. We're just looking at some philosophical reasoning, scientific reasoning, to show what characteristics this cause must have. Sorry, guys. That should be good. Okay. I know we had to fly through a lot of this stuff. It may take you a few times. If you've never even heard this, you've got to kind of think about it. Think of the alternatives. Think of what these implications have to have. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about the objections. Back to Daniel Dennett. He basically says that the universe, it performs a version of the ultimate bootstrapping trick and creates itself ex nihilo. He doesn't deny that things have beginning, have causes. He doesn't deny the universe had a beginning and a cause. He says the universe caused itself. To me, this is totally illogical. That would mean the universe had to exist and not exist at the same time. I just, because people, I mean, you can't get around, you just can't get around this fact. I'm not trying to, you know, make fun of him or anything, but I just, I don't find that to be a, a better explanation than what theism has. Richard Dawkins, you probably know him. Listen to what he says. This is his book, The God Delusion, where he dedicates a whole chapter to this argument, and this is his argument against it. Even if we allowed the dubious luxury of arbitrarily conjuring up a Terminator to the infinite regress and giving it a name simply because we need one, there is no reason to endow the Terminator with any of the properties normally ascribed to God. Omnipotence, omniscient, goodness, creativity of design, to say nothing of human attributes as listening to prayers, forgiving sins, reading innermost thoughts. Where did we ever try to say that? We're trying to show that this cause can read your thoughts, will listen to your prayers that died on a cross. I mean, so what? Listen to how, how much he concedes. He doesn't say that, the, that things that begin have a cause. He doesn't say that the universe didn't begin. All he said is, well, who are you to say that that beginning listens to your prayers? We can respond to that. Who cares? We have other arguments for that. We're not trying to demonstrate that. We're demonstrating that this cause is transcendent, it's powerful, it's personal, it's changeless, it's immaterial. Okay? All right. 
I told you at the beginning, we're going to come back to this quote. I find theism exceedingly reasonable. Okay? As one of my favorite preachers, Ravi Zechariah, says, an argument serves to remove doubt. It's only the Holy Spirit that convicts truth. These things help me to see Christianity as a reasonable worldview. These can help to demonstrate to people Christianity is a reasonable, reasonable worldview. Just knowing these things never did me a bit of good. Okay? Listen to, what, listen to what she says. All we're trying to do with these arguments is help people to see Jesus, to see the Bible objectively. Okay? To kind of remove the stumbling blocks and say, you know what, maybe this is reasonable. Let's see what Jesus has to offer. There's an evidence that's open to all, the most highly educated and the most illiterate. The evidence of experience. God invites us to prove for ourselves the reality of his word, the truth of his promises. He bids us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Instead of depending on the word of another, we are to taste for ourselves. She goes on to say, he can testify. I needed help and I found it in Jesus. Every want was supplied. The hunger of my soul was satisfied. And now the Bible is to me the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you ask why I believe in Jesus? Because he is to me a divine savior. You ask, why do I believe the Bible? Because I have found it to be the voice of God to my soul. We may have the witness in ourselves that the Bible is true, that Christ is the son of God. We know that we are not following cunningly devised fables. Just studying these things helped to remove some of the obstacles I had to believe. But when I was studying in my undergrad at Long story short, my life was a mess, right? I began to see, you know what, maybe this God is who he claims to be, but I was very heavy into drinking and partying, very into doing drugs, going out, chasing women, everything. You might be a little surprised on the person I was just a few short years ago. It wasn't until I got to the point where I had nowhere else to turn and I called upon this God. One of the most powerful texts in the Bible, Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit in me. There's a few words in the Hebrew for create. One of them is asa. It means to build something. It means to build this desk out of the wood, the, you know, to, to make it, basically. David was very specific in his language. He chose a Hebrew word that's not used very often in the Bible. In fact, I think it might only be used in the Genesis account when it said God created the heavens and the earth. He chose the Hebrew word bara, because it means to create something out of nothing. In David's experience, he realized, after the Bathsheba experience, he wrote this psalm, he realized that, heart, that his heart was so desperately wicked that whatever transformation had to come in his life could be nothing of his own. It had to be completely from God. A lot of times I feel, especially when you live in Loma Linda, it's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to just come to church, maybe do outreach in the afternoon, go to potluck, sing some, sing some you know, songs or whatever, and you might miss it. I don't want you to miss it that God can create in you a clean heart. God can do things in your life that you never thought was possible, and it leaves you with the explanation that only God could do this. When I prayed that prayer, my life has become infinitely better. A lot of times people try to point to the outward transformation, right? I don't drink anymore. I don't do all that nonsense. You know, some people grow up and grow out of that. The things that I can't get away from is the way that he's changed my mind and changed my heart and, and the actions that have followed. 
it's hard to, you know, I think it says that the wind blows and you do not know where it comes from, so it is, but he is born in the Spirit. It's hard to explain conversion, but when it happens, you know it happens. In John chapter 9, there's this brother, yeah? He's blind. God, Jesus spits on the dirt, puts it on his eyes, heals this blind man. He's brought before the council, and they keep drilling him with these questions. And he finally says, listen, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know is although I once was blind, now I can see. There's a lot of things that I'm still trying to figure out, a lot of struggles that I have, but I can't escape from the fact that although I once was blind, now I can see. My friends, the reason I believe in God, I believe he's the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. I think he's the best explanation of the design of the universe for objective moral values. I have all these reasons that help me. But the reason I truly believe is because I've come personally acquainted with the God of Barah, the God that can create something out of nothing. I pray that that's your same experience. I pray that you don't go through the motions in Christianity and really miss what it has to offer you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning. I pray special blessing upon each one of my friends here. I pray that you would help them with any struggles that they have and getting over these obstacles that uh, sometimes are, seem immountable. I also pray for them that they would come to know you personally, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good and realize that you are there, you are real, and you are who you claim to be. We love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen.